Hi, North Shore. Never mind all the things that my good friend Scott Harris has to say about me. It's, uh, he's, he's a good brother. Um, as he mentioned, we're all going to receive this statement of faith that our elders took a lot of time to think through, to talk through with one another, to counsel one another, to let iron sharpen iron, to get to the right words to express what we're teaching here, what we're believing, and how we're worshiping. And so first, I want to thank the elders for taking that time to do that, because Paul tells Timothy, Paul is an apostle, as you know, Timothy is uh, a younger pastor, and he's counseling him, and he tells him that among many things, the central job of the elder is to oversee the teaching of the church. Paul himself, who is an apostle, says, what we originally preached to you, he tells the Galatians, that original gospel, that is our founding statement. If I were to come back to you and say something else, then I'm in the wrong, Paul tells them. So just like Scott was telling us, these churches are based on certain central biblical beliefs. And so our pastors, uh, our elders rather, took time to do that for us, to give our fellowship real stability. What that means is, this is something of a constitution, if there are any disagreements, if there are any questions, if there are any worries or quibbles, we can go here and find an elder and press that question to the elder and get the answer that you need. That's their job. And they'll do it for you with gentleness and respectfulness. Uh, but if you, if you disagree, then at least we know where that stands. And this is where we stand on, on these things. So again, I want to thank the elders. As we go through this series, we're going to look at some of these very important statements. You can't really see it where you, where, where you are, uh, but you'll have it in hand. The statement here is, is the sort of summary statement. And then there's a number of scriptural references that go through it. These statements are completely composed of scripture. And that's important for us to recognize that the elders have summarized this for us because that's their job. But what are they commending to us? It's not their personal beliefs. It's not their biases. They're commending to us scripture. We're a Bible-based church. And you might think, well, are there other kinds of churches? I mean, isn't that what a church is supposed to be? Well, yes, that's precisely what a church is supposed to be, and that's what historical churches have always been. Although, you might notice that among those who call themselves Christians, there's at least four ways of going with this. You could be a Bible-based church, that's the right one, or you could be a tradition-based church. They're not always wrong, but it's just not the right way to do it. They'll say, well, we teach, for example, the Trinity because it's the church tradition, Okay. Um, well, the church tradition is important in many ways. It has many clarifying and helpful things to tell us, but in some ways, mistakes have been made. I teach the church tradition. I value the church tradition, but it is not our ultimate authority in theological matters and questions of faith. Uh, hopefully, it rightly reflects it, but it's not the final statement. So it's not because tradition says this. We teach these things because the Bible says it. It's not because our pastors speaking as prophets tell us what the truth is, okay? That's another way of going, a sort of pastor-prophet model. And we love Scott, but he's not the ultimate authority. And then it's not some other thing. And what would the other thing be? Well, there's some groups that call themselves Christian churches that look for some other sort of authority. And, you know, what would that be? Well, that's up to them to tell us what it is, but it's no other thing. 
rooted in the scriptures. So again, as we look at this, let's just, as we review it ourselves critically as a congregation, let's just review the biblicality of this and make sure that it's clear to us that this is biblical. And again, if there's any quibbles or questions, elders uh, are with us to help guide us, to give us that structure, and to oversee um, our, our fellowship together. So that's, that's important. The statement on the Trinity, let me read it to you. This is what it says. We believe in God as revealed in the Bible, one true, holy, sovereign God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, possessing distinct personality. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator and sustainer, present everywhere at all times. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in holiness, justice, mercy, love, power, wisdom, and truth. By his providence, he is working throughout history to fulfill his redemptive purposes. Okay, that's our first statement, and we're going to unpack that right now. Let's start with 1 Peter. This is just one example. Uh, Let me just say this. The Trinity, some people might point out to you that that term is not a biblical term. We don't find the word Trinity in Scripture. The closest term that we find is the term theotes in Colossians 2.9. Theotes, which is the Greek word, which means the fullness of God. It's translated in the King James as Godhead. Maybe you've encountered that word. Trinitas is a Latin word that comes from a Latin theologian of the second century by the name of Tertullian. And at that time, most Christians either spoke Latin or Greek. They spoke some other languages as well. But those were the two main languages of Christian theology. And he invented this Latin term. And even the Greek theologian said, yes, that's the term we're looking for. So it was a term that rallied a lot of agreement about what the scripture said, but it wasn't invented after the Bible. Let me just be emphatic about that. It is, if anybody tells you that, they are not historically aware. It was not invented after the Bible. It comes from the Bible, and it's what the church has always believed. It is what the apostles believed, although they didn't use that terminology. We use it for ourselves to um, have a term that sort of centers the concept uh, that the Bible is conveying to us, so Trinity. And in Scripture, there are not, sometimes you might hear people say, well, there's a couple vague references to the Trinity. Not true. Absolutely not true. I am not overstating this. There are thousands of references. This is at the core of understanding the apostolic preaching. What they have to say about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, about who we are in salvation, makes no sense if you don't understand this concept of the Trinity. And so, um, again, these are people who are simply not biblically aware if they say that. Here's just one quick example. In 1 Peter uh, uh, 1, verse 2, this is an opening to his epistle. Peter's writing, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't say that God is triune or something like that. This is a very typical triple passage in which we see the Father, Son, and Spirit as mentioned equally and on par in terms of our faith and our life in Him. And this happens all the time. This is just the common way of the apostles speaking. This is an example of Peter. We can find ample examples in the other apostles in the New Testament in which they speak in this triple way. The Father, Son, and Spirit are invoked in all things in the Christian life, putting these divine persons on par and expressing that the Father, Son, and Spirit are essential and central to our worship. 
So we really want to think in these ways. Sometimes you read an intro to an epistle and you just think it's kind of religious, like window dressing. That's kind of how apostles talk. And yeah, 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 now get to the point. This is not just window dressing. This is an expression of the heart of Christian worship. So we want to think these things like they thought them, understood them, understand them rightly. It takes an act of discipleship. It does take a little bit of an intellectual workout to think through these things and learn how to read the scriptures rightly so that we can worship God rightly. And why do we want to worship God rightly? Let's just be honest about it and be a little bit selfish. We want to be happy, eternally happy. And that's the way by which we have eternal happiness is by knowing God, being related to him, and worshiping him uh, uh, um, properly. But ultimately, it's not for our happiness, but ultimately for his glory, and that's something that we learn by becoming right worshipers. So you see this sort of triple presentation. Now, I want to show you uh, the Trinity Triangle. This is a sort of logical picture that will help center our thinking about what the Bible says about the nature of God. You see that this triangle has... Uh, the three sides are labeled oneness on the left side, individuality on the right side, and equal divinity on the bottom side. So let me go through each one of those and explain what's going on here. Those sides are three basic teachings of the Bible concerning who or what God is. So starting on the left, oneness indicates that there is one and only one God, one and only one God. The Bible is emphatically clear about that. There's a, there's a fly that just won't leave me alone. For goodness sake, go find somebody else. I'm speaking. Get out of here. <laughs> God bless you. Uh, there is one and only one God. The Bible is emphatically clear about that. There are other gods mentioned in the Bible. They are all false deities. We know that. Sometimes even Israel mistakenly believes that the other false gods have some real power or have some reality to them, and God teaches them emphatically that's not true. And so they go through that tutoring process through the course of uh, Old Testament history. At a sort of high theological mark in Old Testament history, we encounter what God says through Isaiah in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, God says this, This is kind of a high point where Israel has learned lessons really over generations, and God just tells them in the most plain way, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So if you read Isaiah 40 through 46, God says this same statement in a variety of different ways. It's very repetitive, and it's repetitive for a purpose. He is emphasizing and overemphasizing his unique, unrivaled, and maximal oneness. No one is to be compared to God. Atheists believe in too few gods. Polytheists believe in too many gods. There is one and only one God. We are designed to know that. So your life is at least intellectually in the right place when you know that. Uh, Again, if you're an atheist or a polytheist, unfortunately, you're not in the right place. And intellectually, in the very least, not to say spiritually, but intellectually, you're just not going to understand the world. And you're designed to know that way. You're designed to think that way. And so that's vitally important. And so God just says it in this most plain way. So going back to the triangle, there is one and only one God. On the left side, that's pretty solid. Now let's move over to the right side of the triangle. Individuality indicates this. The Father, Son, and Spirit that we encounter in the New Testament are individuals. 
Jesus comes preaching a teaching about his Father who is in heaven. We see this in the Gospels. And people are hearing him. Some are attracted. Some are offended by his message. And he's talking about his Father, and they realize he's talking about the God of Israel. Both his friends and enemies know what he means when he speaks about his Father in heaven. Later on, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send another helper, another helper. That's what he says. Namely, the Holy Spirit who will guide and teach and lead you. You will not be alone. And so we've got the Father, Son, and Spirit presented as individuals. A straightforward reading of the New Testament tells us that. Let's look at John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays in front of his disciples, and it's not just for show. He wants them to hear an inter-Trinitarian dialogue, dialogue between the Father and the Son. And so he prays this. This is the end of the high priestly prayer, John 17. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he is speaking to the Father, interacting with the Father before his own disciples, yes, so that they would hear him, but this is not Jesus faking some conversation. This is Jesus really interacting with his Father who is in heaven. So we have the individuality of the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's one God. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are individuals. Okay, so far so good. Uh, We can make some sense out of that. Now we come to the third basic teaching uh, of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, we find that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in divinity. Equal in divinity. We should not think of the Son and the Holy Spirit as derivative or degraded divinities where the Father alone is the true God, but there's, you know, something important, something high and powerful, but not really God, God. The Son and the Spirit share in the full divinity of the Father. Uh, We see an example, for example, in uh, Matthew 28. Jesus says this, right before his ascension, so important parting words, before Jesus leaves his disciples, he says to them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, not names, but name, the single name of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, another, another one of these triple passages, but what it indicates is that the Father, Son, and Spirit equally participate in our salvation, are equally central to our salvation. It would be totally inappropriate to mention the name of someone other than God at our baptism. Imagine uh, we have a baptism and we say, uh, we're baptizing you in the name of God, the Father, Pastor Scott, and Pastor Pat. Thank you. Um, We love those guys, but absolutely not. Because Scott and Pat are the first ones to tell you, I don't have the power to save you eternally, but I know who does. And let's go to him, but it's not me. And so we don't baptize in anyone else's name but the name of God. And what is that one name? Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit equally share the single divine nature which saves us. Now let's say some things about Jesus very quickly. If we go back just one slide. Sorry, I didn't organize these slides, but you're doing, helping me out a lot here with that. Um, Equal divinity on the bottom side. Let me just add a little bit more to this. 
This again means that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally divine. This is very important as we read the New Testament to understand what the apostles are saying about Jesus. Because again, if we don't understand what the apostles are saying about Jesus, we don't know who he is. We don't know what he does for us. We don't know what his salvation is. And therefore, we're not saved. And that would be terrible. So we want to know who he is as the apostles tell us. Now, the good news is I'm not the teacher of that. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of that, and the Holy Spirit makes that known to us. But let's pay attention to what the apostles say so we can hear what the Holy Spirit is teaching to us. First, the apostles tell us that Jesus shares in the nature and therefore has the names of God. So what does nature mean? You have a human nature just like me. That's what makes us equal. We share the same kind of nature. We're both humans, so I have human rights, you have human rights. We can't abuse each other. If we try to, somebody would say, you guys are wrong. You can't do that. Well, we have a human nature, so that, that, that gives us human value. Jesus shares in the divine nature, as we'll say. Given that you have a human nature, you have human names. So you have a name that your parents gave you. We might call you also he or she if we don't know your name. Same with me. Scott said I'm a man of many names. I don't know why he says stuff like that. <laughs> Bless Scott. We're, well, we're all people of many names. So, um, yeah, in this situation, you, um, in this setting, you would say pastor. You would say Sanjay. You know my name. Uh, at school, they call me professor or doctor. At home, my kids call me dad. Different names. And in those situations, of course, somewhat different personalities. Jesus has the names of God applied to him. Let me give you some examples. Uh, first, with regard to the nature Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Jesus is precisely what God looks like. That's what that means. Hebrews 1, it says that he is the exact imprint of the divine nature. The exact imprint. Again, the writer of Hebrews, which is not Paul, emphasizes the exact same point. That to look at Jesus is to look at what God looks like. The words of Jesus are what the words of God sound like. Paul says in Colossians 2, the whole, fullness dwells in, uh, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells in him. In other words, he is fully God. The fullness of deity dwells in him. And that justifies what Jesus says in John 14. Philip questions him and he says, Jesus, you keep telling us about God. Just show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus says, Philip, do you not understand when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is not claiming to be the Father because that wouldn't make sense of all the other things he says about the Father sending him and that the Father loves the Son. He says he is not the Father. He reveals the Father, but he fully embodies everything that the Father is. So if someone were to say to you, you're very Christ-like, what a great compliment that is. And they say to you, you're very godly. Would you mentor me? I, I want to learn some things that you seem to know. That would be awesome. When we go to Jesus, we don't say, Jesus, you're very Christ-like. He's not Christ-like, he's the Christ. We don't say, Jesus, you're very godly. He is God in human flesh. That's what the apostles are teaching us. So he has divine names. His disciples called him Lord Hakurios. Not a Lord, but the Lord. In case there's any wonder, they call him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If you have another Lord, Jesus is Lord over him. Lord of Lords and King of Kings is a divine title. Who has all authority, like all authority? Not a lot of authority, all of it, God alone. Jesus has that authority. My friend is back. Thomas calls 
Jesus my Lord and my God when he sees him resurrected and falls down and worships him. Both Paul and Peter call him our great God and Savior. Those are all divine titles. Jesus calls himself I am in John 8, 58. That is God's name from Exodus 3, 14 when Moses asks God, okay, I'll go to Pharaoh. I don't want to, but tell me who you are. And God says, I am that I am. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses that divine title. Those are just a couple of examples. There are so many, but I have a countdown and uh, I can't get into all of them. And so this is just a, a small little sample. Jesus shares in the nature and names of God. Given that he has a divine nature, he has divine attributes. You have a human nature, so you have human attributes. You can do things that humans can do. You do human things, and so Jesus does divine things. He has divine attributes, and he does divine acts. For example, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus tells us that he shares in God's glory. Who shares in God's glory? You have to be divine to share in God's glory. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ created everything. The apostles just say it bluntly like that. They say he created tapanta. Tapanta, you could translate that universe in some contexts, but in general, it means all things. It literally means the everything. They don't say he created a lot of things. They don't say he created most things. They say he created all things. You have to have divine power to create all things. That's crazy talk. The son of Mary from Nazareth created all things. That's what the apostles tell us. He upholds the universe. He holds it together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. His love is God's love. We would like to be very loving, but the love with which we love is derived from him. His love, his native love is God's love. And we see that in many places in the New Testament. So he has God's love native in him. He alone saves the world, as we know, Romans 10, 9. Jesus saves the world. You have to have divine power and divine goodness to be the savior of the world and he alone judges the world he tells us that in matthew 25 he is the judge of the world again you have to have divine power and divine wisdom to judge the world none of us is in a position to to judge the world but only god alone is jesus does that and so he has the divine acts or divine attributes and does the divine acts and therefore he's worthy of the divine honors philippians 2 Uh, Paul relates a creed to us in which he tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ is to glorify God. The angels worship him in Revelation 5. And that's why Jesus says in John 14 to his disciples, you believe in God, believe also in me. In the same way you trust God, trust me. Now imagine Scott, who I told you we love him, so keep that in mind. We're to say, the same way that you trust in God, you need to trust in me, your senior pastor. If I say it, it's God saying it. Now we have a cult leader. And thankfully, we, and Scott's not going to do that because we have elders. We're going to keep him and me and, and all of the rest of the teachers accountable. But you wouldn't go for that. But Jesus says that. He's not a cult leader. He's God in human form. And so believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, now let's return to the Trinity Triangle. Now, how can we think these three things? If we move one more slide, I I think, forward, and it's my, many of my slides look, you know, they're exactly the same. But now we have the corners labeled. Now, imagine this. The Trinity Triangle is not a triangle, but imagine it's a pyramid. And 
We're above the pyramid looking down, God's eye view. If you're above the pyramid looking down, you can see all three sides of the triangle simultaneously. But if you're on ground level, a massive Egyptian pyramid, pyramid, you could never see all three sides from ground level. If you stand at a corner, you could see two sides at the same time, right? But you can never see all three sides. Well, in order to be biblical people, to worship rightly, we have to see all three sides simultaneously, but we're not in God's view, standing over things, seeing the pyramid from the top. In order to see all three sides, clearly what we have to do, because we're on ground level, we're only humans, we have to get into the pyramid. If you get in and you look up at the apex, you see all three walls come together. So you can see all three sides if you're in the pyramid or above the pyramid. If you stand outside the pyramid, you can only see two. So at the north corner of this pyramid, we see it labeled Arianism. What's going on with Arianism? Arianism is an ancient belief. It's called a heretical belief. Uh, It comes from a Greek word meaning alternative. It's not what the church teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's an alternative view, which says, yes, there's one and only one God. We look at the Bible and we recognize that there's only one God. I, I get that. And we know that the Father, Son, and Spirit are individuals. Yes, absolutely. But we don't see that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally divine. There's a contemporary religious group, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are modern-day Arians. Arianism is an ancient belief, and they accidentally reinvented it um, because uh, a certain view of the Bible would lead to that conclusion. If you come to all of the things that the apostles say about Jesus, and you say, yeah, but that can't be true. If you come to the Bible with that bias, and you won't really listen to the apostles because you can't untangle that knot yourself, I mean, it really puts your own abilities of comprehension up on a pedestal. It's like, if I can't understand it, it can't be true. Well, okay, have a little bit more humility, we might say to the Arians. Uh, The apostles, they said what they said. Now, we have to wrestle with it and ask God for wisdom. But they say, no, when, when they say these things about Jesus, it's just not really true. And so they deny that bottom, that south side of the pyramid. So they stand there. Well, if you're on the east corner Um, that's labeled tritheism, and you would recognize that the Father, Son, and Spirit are individuals, and they're equally divine, but you don't fully or clearly see that there's one and only one God. Now, how could anybody do that and call themselves a biblical person? I mean, the Bible is emphatically clear. There's really no doubts about that, that there's one and only one God. That passage from Isaiah 43 that we looked at is just so clear. Um, So it almost never happened in the history of the church that there were any people who said that there are three gods, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we were Christians and we worship three separate gods. It wasn't until the 1830s that you get a legitimate religious group that says we're Christians and the Father, Son, and Spirit are discrete gods, and that's Mormonism. So Mormonism accidentally reinvented tritheism in in the modern period. So you got the Mormons there, and in the west corner, that one's labeled modalism, and They see that there's one and only one God. They're not polytheists. That's good. And they see that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in divinity. That's what the New Testament is teaching. But they're not really seeing that the Father, Son, and Spirit are individuals. So again, it would be like pastor merchant and doctor merchant and dad. Three different names. And in those situations, I have three different personalities, but there's really only one person behind it. Well, that doesn't make much sense of the New Testament. When Jesus says, I'm going off to pray to my father, to his disciples, he says, you stay here. He wasn't going off to talk to himself. That would have been deceptive. When he said, the father sent me and I testify of the father, is he lying to us? No. Let's not just assume that Jesus is lying to us or that's not really what he means. That's the problem with modalism. 
there is a contemporary modalist group. It's called Oneness Pentecostalism. And that's not, if, if you know Pentecostals, that's, Pentecostals are Trinitarian, but there's a, there's a heretical group called Oneness Pentecostals. If you know the musical group uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they are uh, mo, uh, uh, modalist pastors. So, interesting. Okay. These are three errors. We don't want to be at any of these corners. We want to be inside. So how do we get inside? There are three analogies of the Trinity that help us think about God. Wouldn't it be great to just be in the center, looking up and worshiping God? Imagine the apex of the pyramid has a, is, is made of glass, and we can see God from that vantage point and worship him, and then we are seen by God. But if you stand outside, there's clouds of mist, and you can't really see and worship God. So we want to get right into the center. What is the scientific description of God that just gives us total clarity so we fully and completely and finally understand who and what God is? Unfortunately, there is no scientific description of God because God is not an object of our scientific research. God reveals himself, and God is ultimately uh, beyond our total comprehension. He's not utterly incomprehensible. Good news, we don't have to be agnostics, but we cannot fully comprehend God. So what we have are analogies, helpful ways to think about what Scripture teaches us. So here's the first analogy. It's called processional Trinitarianism. And notice it's located in the north corner. It's inside the pyramid, so good. If you're thinking of God in these ways, you're thinking of God in biblical ways. This is a perfectly good way. But it borrows a little bit of logic from Arianism. So remember, Arianism says that the Father created the Son. The Son is a creature. It's like the relationship between Geppetto and Pinocchio. Geppetto created Pinocchio out of wood, but Pinocchio wasn't really a human, and and you know the story of magic, and he becomes a real boy, but not really a human in the regular human way, uh, and so not really equal to Geppetto. The Bible presents Jesus as the Son of God, and the church emphasized he is begotten of the Father. Jesus calls himself the only begotten Son, the only begotten Son. You might say, well, we're sons of God and daughters of God. No, Jesus says, I'm the only begotten son. When his critics said to him, well, we, God is also our father, our sweet Jesus says to them, no, he is my father. Your father is the devil. So Jesus tells his opponents, okay, so he alone and uniquely is my father. So imagine a king and his son. This is the first analogy, a king and his son. A king has total monarchical power. God has total uh, over a kingdom. God has total monarchical power over the whole of everything. Now, a king who has a son might name his son subregent. Subregent means he's a sort of sub-king. So are there two kings, or is there like 1.5 kings or something like that? No. There is one kingdom, and that one kingdom is undivided. The kingship is undivided. The son shares in the kingship of the father. If you remember in Genesis, when uh, Pharaoh named Joseph sub-regent and gave him his signet ring. When Joseph walked up to you and spoke to you, Pharaoh was speaking to you. You couldn't wave your hand at Joseph and say, go away. I don't care what you say, Hebrew. If Pharaoh tells me, I'll do it. You're dead. You're dead. Because when he's speaking to you, Pharaoh is speaking. He shares in the single authority of Pharaoh. Jesus Christ fully shares in and participates in the full authority of God. There are not two authorities. There are not two omnipotent beings in the universe. There's one omnipotence that the Father, Son, and Spirit share. There are not three omniscient, all-knowing beings in the world. There is one omniscience the Father, Son, and Spirit share. There's not three holy, great, maximal beings. The Father, Son, and Spirit share that because 
the unity of God is unbroken. The majesty of God is unbroken. So imagine the relationship between a king and his subregent wielding the one authority. Now, that analogy isn't perfect because, well, clearly, a king and his son are two discrete beings. So how do you have one being? Because that's where we want to get in Trinitarian thinking. So we can move a little bit more. We can move the ball forward by thinking of the relationship between the sun and its radiance, or the sun and the sunlight. As long as the sun exists, so the sunlight exists. And in fact, the New Testament calls Jesus Christ the radiance of the Father. He radiates out of the Father. So when was he begotten? He's eternally begotten. He comes from the very being of the Father and glows out. How do we see the Son? In and through the sunlight. How do we come to God the Father? In and through Jesus Christ. We might think also to extend the analogy that the heat that we feel on our skin is um, like what we think of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we feel and know the presence of God. So the sun radiates out light and heat, and so the Father radiates out eternally his Son and his Spirit. So two arms reaching into the world, one arm of salvation in Jesus, one arm of sanctification in the Spirit, gathering his people for himself. It's a little bit of a hierarchical view. feels a little bit Aryan, but it's definitely within the triangle, and that's a proper way to think about God. That sun analogy, if that helps, contemplate that and talk about that in your fellowship. But Um, later on, theologians said, very good, but let's develop this a little bit differently, and let's, let's have a theology that really emphasizes their equal divinity. So later on in church history, some theologians uh, developed uh, what I call Eastern Trinitarianism, and they were mainly Greek speakers, so the Eastern church is where we get a lot of this thinking, and one of these early theologians says this. He totally agrees with the processional view. He, he That's the way that the church spoke early on. It uses a lot of the biblical language to advance that analogy. And he said this, we understand that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in divinity. Well, imagine three torches. If you have three torches, they're, they're equal. Um, they're, they're entirely constructed the same, and they put out the same light. And when you bring those light, that light together, you have one collective undifferentiated light, and that would be the divine being that the Father, Son, and Spirit share. And imagine these torches sort of mutually start encircling, start drawing circles around each other so that uh, one theologian says we see one holy circuit. They begin encircling one another. That is to think of the Father as circling the Son and Spirit. The Father contains the Son and Spirit, and that's what we just said when we're looking at the processional analogy. The Son is begotten from the bosom of the Father, John 1 says. That sounds kind of like the womb. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father, John 15. Oh, sorry, um, oh yeah, John 15, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so the Father contains the Son and Spirit. But Jesus himself also contains the Father in the Spirit. He says to his disciples, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Father is in me. I contain all of God in me. There's no extra God behind me, Philip. And in John 20, he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes right out of Jesus' lungs. The Holy Spirit comes from his very being. So he contains the Father and the Spirit, but the Spirit also contains the Father and the Son. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him and we will come and make our home in him. How do the Father and the Son make their home in us by means of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? So you can think of these three holy lights mutually encircling one another. That's another way of going. So the three torches are the three mutually encircling lights analogy. And then here's a final one. It's called Western Trinitarianism uh, because it was largely developed by Latin-speaking Christians in the West. And they looked back and they agreed with all of that, the processional analogy, the sun radiating out, the lights encircling one another. But they said this, very interesting analogy. We're persons made in God's image and God is the preeminent 
person. We are just um, small visions of what God is ultimately. And the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God in John 1.1. In Greek, it's NRK and halagos. In the beginning was the Word. Halagos is thought to be God's eternal self-understanding. Let me mention, for example, my son, Zeke. I know Zeke, so here's me and there's Zeke. I know Zeke, and I love Zeke, okay? So it's like these two invisible cords connect me to Zeke. So when I say, I know Zeke, there's three things involved. There's me, there's Zeke, and there's the relationship of knowing. I love Zeke, me and Zeke, and the relationship of loving. So these like invisible cords that connect me to him. Now imagine that God is eternally a solitary divine person. He has these fundamental characteristics of knowing and loving, but it's not directed at another, which doesn't exist, but rightly directed to himself. So this uh, relation of knowing and this relation of loving. You have a self-concept. That is your relationship to yourself. You know yourself. So you back to yourself. You know yourself. If your concept, self-concept is good and you're not really deluded or arrogant or don't have mental problems, you have a good view of yourself, you can write a good and accurate autobiography. And that autobiography represents you well, but it doesn't represent you perfectly. God's autobiography, his logos, represents him perfectly without any de- defect. In fact, it walks and talks like him. Your autobiography couldn't do that, couldn't give a perfect representation of you. Be you another time over. And so the Latin uh, uh, Western Trinitarian said, that's what the Lagos is. Jesus Christ is everything that God is without being a discrete being. Just like there's a difference between you and your self-concept, so there's a difference between the Father and the, and the Son, but yet the Son contains and represents everything that the Father is. And the Spirit is God's love, they would say, evolved up so that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in substance but yet distinct in this way without being three gods. And so, as you can see, it borrows a little bit of the logic of modalism. We've moved around this triangle. I've said a lot. I just dropped on you. No big deal. 500 years of church history, thinking through these things, interpreting Scripture. Hopefully, this helps to give us some logical categories to think clearly about what Revelation is saying. The sun analogy we can move on then to the encircling lights analogy and move on to the mind, its knowledge, and its love analogy and think about the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And in that movement, it's both intellectual, but it can be a little bit frustrating because, again, it's not final. What it does is we move around in this sort of holy cycle in which we worship God more deeply and always perceive more, but we will never come to an end of knowing God. If we did come to an end of knowing God and say, we know everything about God, that would be terrible because we've got eternity to sit on that. And then you'd sit in an eternity of boredom and eternal boredom is eternal pain and heaven would become hell. The good news is heaven is not hell. There's always more to know. God is always more. And there's always more to worship. And that's an eternal promise for us. So here's where we're going to end. Worship team's going to come out. And this is what we want to do. Our response in all of this and through this series is that we want to know the scriptures. This is a tool for knowing the scriptures. These are not the scriptures. These are our elders being faithful to summarize the main teachings of the scriptures around which we will fellowship. There's a lot of room for debate and discussion and disagreement within our fellowship. This is not dogmatic, you know, beating you over the head with these facts and... This is for our fellowship 
and for a mutual encouragement of one another. And this is a sort of founding constitution in many ways uh, on which we can, we can have some stability as a congregation. So we want to know the scriptures, and in knowing the scriptures, I want to encourage you guys to worship the Father, Son, and Spirit as scripture encourages us to. And again, this is a helpful tool for doing that. So uh, amen, amen. <laughs>